Dr. Junio Bacaletti, renowned expert on natural resource security and environmental sustainability. Trained as a physicist and a climate scientist, he holds a doctorate from Princeton University where he was a NASA Earth Systems Science Fellow. He has been a research scientist at MIT, a partner of McKinsey and Company, and the CSO of the Nature Conservancy, one of the largest environmental organizations in the world. Among many other things, PBS created a docu-series, H2O, The Molecule That Made Us, showcasing his work on water. His new book is Water, a Biography. Giulio Boccoletti, welcome to the One Planet podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you have, before writing your book, Water, a Biography, extensive experience thinking about pending water crisis. You worked notably as CSO and Global Managing Director for Water at the Nature Conservancy, trained as a physicist and atmospheric scientist. Tell us about the future of water security and scarcity and why you decided to write Water, a Biography. Well, okay, thank you. It's a big question, yes. Yeah, so I'll try to I'll try to answer as best as I can. I mean, I think you know I've been working on water issues now for the better part of almost two decades. You know, I started, as you said, as a climate scientist, and then I, I decided I wanted to try and have an impact in the world. And it felt to me that water issues were the sort of frontier, if you will, of where the reality of the climate system interfaced the economy and interfaced the lives of everyone. Um, and so that's what I sort of ended up devoting a lot of time. And uh, where we are today is that, you know, if you read any newspaper, you conclude that we are in a crisis, right? I mean, it's uh, news of only a few days ago that uh, the federal government of the United States has called a uh, water crisis on the Colorado uh, River, you know, at Lake Mead, which probably means the cut of supply for the farmers that live in Arizona, Nevada, um, California. You probably read of the floods that happened in Germany. The Rhine decided to escape its embankments and, and, and flood large parts of Germany. The same happened in China. So from an events perspective, it's clear that something is going on. And I think what's going on is what drew me to the field all those years ago, which is that the climate system is indeed changing and the way in which it manifests itself uh, in the landscape is through water. And so what we're seeing is the sort of evidence of that. Now, what's interesting about water, there is, of course, this story of the planet, the planet is changing, but mostly water is a story about us. It's a story about essentially a sedentary civilization. We've all decided to stay put uh, in a world of moving water. And that has meant that for the better part of the last 10,000 years, we've struggled with this question of how do you build cities and have societies that are in place while around you, uh, rivers and storms and floods sort of move along. And so the problems that we're seeing are not just evidence of a changing climate, they're also evidence of failures of solutions. They're the failures of institutions that have been built over centuries to manage these water problems. And for a while, we thought we had succeeded. For a while, we thought we had conquered nature and we were going to essentially live a life unencumbered by the impacts of water. And now we're discovering that that's not true. So that's where we are, Mia. I think we are at a, a turning point in our relationship with water all over the world. That's Maybe not news, alas, for countries that are poorer and that have fewer resources and, and less infrastructure, but it's certainly news for the rich countries of the world, the United States, Germany, England, where I live, France, and so forth, who maybe thought they lived in this illusion that they had conquered water, and in fact, it turns out they haven't. 
you focus a lot on the history of how long we have been managing or failing to manage, in some cases, water, and how much the story of water is also a political story. Yeah, I mean, I think it, what's interesting about water is that I mean, in the end, it's a story of political institutions primarily. If you think about it, water comes down from the sky in the scale of weather systems and flows through the landscape in the scale of rivers. All of these are phenomena that far exceed the range and scope of the life of any individual. And so by their very nature, they force us to work together. If you're trying to irrigate a field with the waters of the Euphrates, you're gonna have to work with your neighbors to figure out how to uh, build a canal. If you're trying to build a village or a city on the banks of the Yellow River, you'll have to work with others to figure out how you can constrain the river. And so really the story of water is a story of how we tried and failed and tried and succeeded to work together to confront this overwhelming force that the climate system produces on the landscape. Now, as societies have gotten more complicated, that working together has to be intermediated by ever more complicated institutions. And I would argue, and the reason I write so much about history is that I think that over 10,000 years of wrestling with this question and working through institutions and layers of institutions, it turns out that most institutions of society today hold somewhere in them the DNA of that fight with water, from the most abstract, from sort of some of our religious beliefs to even the Republic as an idea uh, is born out of this kind of constant quest to organize together to achieve a collective result and express our collective agency on the natural world. And speaking about working together, I think that we're all anticipating and hopeful or some of us skeptical of what can be achieved at uh, COP26. What do you hope and what that will mean for water security? Well, in some ways, the debates about climate change and the succession of COPs, we're now at the 26th one. Uh, it's been, as far as I'm concerned, it's been watching a slow train crash. The IPCC just released its sixth assessment report, and it's super interesting, and it's testament to the scientists that have worked relentlessly to try and put out this knowledge. But frankly, for somebody who trained in this field, it is astonishing how little new there is. I mean, we've known that there's this problem for a long time, and the science has been not settled. I mean, science is never quite settled, but we, we've known enough to act for a long, long time, right? And so uh, what do I hope for this COP? Well, part of it is just that we start behaving as if we really believed it, because we all say we believe it. It doesn't strike me that we are really behaving as if we believed it. So that's kind of one thing I hope. But the other thing that I think uh, always comes to mind when these international institutions and the international kind of meetings happen is that in some ways we're well beyond the point of hoping to avoid the impact. I mean the climate system is changing. We started this conversation and I mentioned the events in the Colorado Basin or you will have surely seen and the listeners will have surely seen the fires in the west of the American continent. Those same phenomena have happened in Turkey, they've happened in Russia and of course the fires happen all the time but this year they're amplified by the drought. The, the water cycle and the hydrology of the planet is changing already. And so what this COP marks, I think, for all of us is also just uh, the need to go over the corner and start managing the consequences of a changing climate. I think for a long time, the rhetoric was a rhetoric of let's try to avoid the changes. Well, the changes are here. And most of them, by the way, will show up in the form of water one way or the other. And so now I think we are in a world in which 
the debates about climate change have become or are going to have to become debates about water security. How do societies deal with a changing climate that manifests itself mostly through water? Yes. And what did you learn as you mentioned the IPCC? You were a lead author on the previous assessment report. So what did you learn or what was the focus? It's mysterious to us. I was briefly invited to be a lead author and I had to resign primarily because one of the things I learned was that these international processes are incredibly slow and, and labor intensive. And thank God there are academics who have the willingness, time and resources to spend in weeks and weeks of negotiations to try and come with a consensus view of what's happening on the planet. At the time I was working and I, I simply didn't have the, the time to engage as much. But what's been interesting watching this from the third assessment report many, many years ago, the second and the first. I remember reading the first ones all the way to today is how little the basic result has changed. In fact, you can go back all the way to 1979 when Jules Charney, then one of the great meteorologists of the United States, published his very first assessment of the impacts of climate change for the National Academy of Sciences. He predicted back then that a doubling of CO2 would lead to roughly a three degree change in temperature of the planet. And that's climate sensitivity hasn't really fundamentally changed 50 years later. So one of the things that struck me as I engaged with the folks at the IPCC, but also as I engaged with my former colleagues in the world of climate science is that the science is not settled in the sense that climate science is an incredibly interesting area of work. There's lots of research to be done, but insofar as we're talking about the implications of injecting carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, well, the implications are pretty clear, and I doubt they're going to change very much. And so, you know, time of action was two decades ago. And so here we are still talking about it. I always like to focus on the positive solutions, and, and you've always emphasized natural protection of watersheds. Natural solutions are often the best and, and the cheapest, too. I was reading recently, and you can tell me if this is correct, by 2050, 36% of cities will be experiencing water crisis. Yeah, I think it's right. Urbanization is a particular challenge because, of course, we all decide to live together in these very concentrated places. And that means that we have to bring to us most of what we need, including water. And as you uh, will probably realize, if you've ever drawn a bath for yourself, water is heavy. A bathtub of water weighs a ton. So you can imagine having to move millions of tubs around the world as you try to supply cities with water. And so that becomes a very expensive and infrastructurally demanding problem because it's an expensive one. It will tie to how wealthy those cities are and tie to how wealthy those people are, right? And so indeed, it's true. Over time, we expect about a third of the cities of the world to suffer some form of scarcity. Alas, and unfortunately, that will disproportionately hit the poor. So that's another important thing to realize about water issues, environmental issues in general, but water issues in particular, is that delivering water that's safe to drink Delivering water that's timely to use for the various activities, you know, agriculture, whatever, is an expensive business. And without a state that mutualizes those costs, what ends up happening is that wealthy people have access to whatever they need because they can simply buy it, and those who don't have the resources don't. So I think one of the things that's worth pointing out, in particularly in water, is that often we focus on these kind of long-term future problems. But you've got to remember, a large chunk of the population today suffers the problems that we're describing for the future. You only have to go to Kailisha in Cape Town or the slums of Nairobi to find people who have no access to formal 
water today, and they didn't 20 years ago. And so that's really the the kind of tragedy. It's the number of people that are experiencing those issues will probably increase, but it's not necessarily just a physical problem. It's an economic and economic development issue. Now, just to kind of uh, flip to the positive though, right? Because I, th I think it's important to not be despondent about these things. There are solutions to all these problems. And some of them are indeed, as you were suggesting about investing in natural system and kind of harnessing the power of the ecology to help us deliver some services. But frankly, I mean, there's that, but also just plainly, we know how to solve these problems. London has solved these problems since 1870. It's not a mystery what you need to do to provide water to people. It's not a mystery what you need to do to provide water for industrial activity or agriculture. It's not a mystery what you need to do to support economic development. The issue is providing finance, having institutions that work, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so the good news is these are all in the end human created problems and so by definition they can be solved by us not easy but that's what keeps me sort of optimistic is we know what it is. it's not about you know colonizing mars we know how to solve this we've solved it before we just need to get organized to do it indigenous water protectors and indigenous people are currently at the front line of the water conservation movement all around the world as you said do you think that we will see governments moving towards the idea that bodies of fresh water have environmental rights and that water should be viewed as a human right and distributed more equitably? Well, so Karina, that's a great question. And I think there are many parts to it. One is the question of, of human rights and, and rights to water. And another is the question of whether there's sort of a growing movement about giving nature rights and say rivers rights. In fact, there's been some examples in New Zealand where that has happened. I am frankly, I'm a humanist, right? I care about people about more than I care about anything else. Although I think that there's an interesting debate to be had about whether non-human persons have the sorts of rights that folks talk about. I'm less interested in that than fulfilling the rights of existence, life, and self-determination of people around the world. That, to me, is the central question. Now, when you talk about indigenous peoples around the world, you're talking about a layering of problems that, in many cases, starts with colonization, right? And, and the issues we have today is that the management of water, in rural areas, which happens to be where many of these populations reside, relies on title and relies on ownership of land. You know, and to manage a river, you have to be able to access the land around it in order to manage an ecosystem. You have to be able to somehow exercise some property over that ecosystem so that you can actually protect it from others and exclude others from using it. Even the communal management at a, at a sort of societal level requires it being respected by others. And so to me, a lot of the problem of making sure that indigenous uh, communities have access to water is tightly linked to this question of indigenous communities having access to title and to land. And, and this problem of fragments in different places in different ways. The problem of titling lands in Canada is different from that in the United States, which is different from that in Africa. But it's a, a fundamental issue. At the heart of it is the kind of uh, right to self-determination of these communities. And that to me is, is a very easy thing to get behind. Now, can we be optimistic? It depends on where, obviously, but it's certainly a fight worth uh, fighting for. Karina, but you, you asked me a very interesting question and it's one of the reasons I think it's so important to think about history, thinking about the problems of water, or the problems of the environment more broadly today, because only when you understand where the current situation comes from, can you then start understanding how to solve it? Nor is this more clear than in the case of indigenous communities, because their condition today 
is the product of human history, is the product of the forces that have kind of moved across the planet over the last three, four, five hundred years. I think it's, it's a really important question with incredibly complicated answers by country, but I think this focus on human rights and on the rights of self-determination, I think, are central to resolving some of the tensions that are uh, intrinsic to the water problem. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I think it's so important. I really uh, admire countries like Ecuador who've written the earth law right into their constitution or around the world, different laws, whether one's focus is on human beings and our rights to survive. It's really important, I think, because without earth laws to protect bodies of water, I've been told also it's a little bit imperfect, but without that, then say a corporation that owns land that has water on it, they can say they own it and then pollute it. And then the people who might consume that water have to prove that the birth defects, that the failing health has been caused. And that's very hard to do. So as I understand it, as imperfect as earth law is, it also helps then an advocate speaks on the body of water's behalf and it really helps that they don't have to prove that all their health problems were caused by say a dumping or something like that well yes i think you touch on something really uh, important here and something that i've gotten more and more interested in which is the question of what constitutional compact do we need to confront the environmental challenges of the 21st century if you think about the origin of modern constitutionalism, it comes out of mostly the 19th century. I mean, obviously, the end of the 18th century with the American-French experience, but fundamentally the 19th century. And the concern at the time was a humanist concern, and it was a concern about enfranchisement and social rights. So it was very much centered on the individual. But this was a time in which environmental concerns, while they existed, and there's an interesting story to tell there, but while they existed, they weren't the dominant concern of society. We weren't in the Anthropocene yet. Now we are in the Anthropocene. And so there's this really interesting question of are our constitutional compacts, the principles by which we live together in a national society, are those adequate? Are those fit for purpose? Right? You can start seeing that they're being tested. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was this really famous, really interesting case of climate litigation done by a Dutch NGO called Urgenda, who essentially took the Dutch government to court because the Dutch government, alongside the entire European Union, had committed to certain targets for carbon emission reductions, which had not been met. Originally, the case for Urgenda was a case of tort law, as you were suggesting. So the impacts on individuals, 900 people got together, represented by Urgenda, and took the government of the Netherlands to court because they felt that they were being harmed by the failure of the government to meet uh, its carbon emissions commitments. By the time the case got to the Supreme Court, it had become a human rights case. It was litigated on the back of the Human Rights Charter of the European Union, which says that European Union and its members have an obligation to protect the right of life and the right to private life of its citizens. It's on that basis that the Supreme Court awarded victory to Urgenda. So I think there's an indication there of where all of this is going. You start with these issues of tort law, of your actions are having an impact on my individual health, but you end up in a conversation about constitutions, about what principles 
we actually have to live by. And amongst them, it's really interesting that an environmental case ended up being argued on the back of a human rights provision. And now we saw more of these. We've seen this in Ireland, or we've seen them in other places. So back to your example in Ecuador, I think that there's an interesting question about statutes that give personhood to nature or to the landscape. But I think an even more interesting question is, how do we build into our constitutions the recognition that the right to a healthy environment, for example, is something that's as important as the right to private ownership, right? So this question is, hasn't been resolved yet, but I think it's something that we'll find ourselves wrestling more and more as kind of the climate system changes and as we encounter many more of these problems. Holland is an interesting case, of course, with their special relationship to water because of being uh, below the sea level. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on certain farming practices, because we do, in a way, have enough water. It's just that we're wasteful in it, definitely with agriculture. So you must have come across some really interesting solutions where people and farmers are living within their limits. First of all, you're absolutely right, Mia. There is plenty of water on the planet. In fact, the amount of water has never changed since it first appeared on the planet, pretty much. I mean, apart from some hydrolysis, essentially, we've had the same you know, number of molecules. Most of it is in the oceans, of course, but fundamentally, we always had the same amount of water. So one of the things that people have to be careful of is not to think of water in a scarcity sense as if it's oil. We don't consume water in the same sense. The experience of water is scarce, because you need it to be available at one moment in time when you need it in a particular place. So having water where you need it, when you need it, at the quality that you need it, well, that can be scarce. But that's a human product, right? Water is available at a certain given time in a certain place at a certain quality because we've done something. We've spent money to move it and we've spent money to clean it and we've spent money to store it when there wasn't enough and so forth. So it turns out agriculture represents 98% of the consumptive use of all the water that humanity uses. So the story of water from a human rights perspective and from a developmental perspective, access to water, clean water and sanitation is by far the biggest problem. It's by far the biggest driver of health concerns. From a volumetric perspective, from a sort of planetary perspective, the story of water is a story of food, a story of agriculture. So you end up having essentially three different levers to manage the tension between having enough water and growing food. The first one is the one you refer to, which is, can we get more efficient? Can we do more with less. And some countries have gotten particularly adept at doing that. If you go to Israel, for example, famously, the sort of development of drip irrigation is an example of that. But there are even quite advanced technologies. These days, there are vertical farms where you grow vegetables using hydroponics, which essentially don't even need land. You're sort of just doing it in a former parking lot on multiple levels. I mean, that's extraordinary. However, that is not going to solve uh, the problem of feeding 7 billion people. So at the margin, that's really interesting. But in the end, we're still going to use lots of land to grow food and lots of water to grow food. So there is this question of how do you do that more efficiently? That's one question. There are ways of doing it. I mean, we're exceedingly wasteful. Although if we had more time here, there's a really interesting and wonky conversation about what wasteful actually means because it's just complicated, right? The water that you waste in one field ends up showing up in somebody else's field. And so it's not always a given that it's wasteful. Then you have a second lever though, which is also important that people sometimes forget, which is you can grow different things. Different types of plants have different water requirements and different types of plants have different value to us. So you make choices. You grow alpha alpha, you grow nuts, you grow fruit trees, or you grow olives, or you grow crops. So where you do that vis-a-vis -vis how much water you have matters a great deal. So the second sort of big lever is you can sort of change the mix of things that you 
grow so that you end up having a more effective, more value-adding water use. You get more crop per drop and you get more value out of the drops that you have. Then you have the third issue, which is really, really important, a double-edged sword, which is trade. You can essentially grow things in places that have plentiful water and then move them. That's how the Roman Empire sustained itself. Even Monty Python said that Rome gave us the aqueducts. But in fact, Rome is not particularly important for its physical infrastructure. The experience of Rome is particularly important because they designed a market for food that can pass the whole Mediterranean. They moved crops from Spain and Turkey in Egypt towards Rome and back. And that's how they achieved food security. In the modern world, the Mediterranean is a globe. Today, we move food around all over the place. And we could do that much more effectively and much more efficiently if we grew more things in places that have lots of water and then sent them to places that don't have enough. That's how the whole Middle East sustains itself. If you think about Dubai as an example, Dubai's carrying capacity, the amount of water and land that Dubai has, could support a few tens of thousands of people. 10 million people live in Dubai. The reason is they buy everything they need from somewhere else. So the world is this complicated web of trade. Trade's food, but in truth, in that food is water. It's what people call virtual water, what Tony Allen and um, uh, Hank Kirkstra, uh, you know, termed the virtual water. So that's a third lever. It's thinking hard about tariffs and trade barriers and figuring out how you actually get food produced in the places that have the most suitable landscape and resources. Research is showing that the conflicts in the Middle East, such as the Syrian civil war, are in part due to the severe droughts, which led to agricultural land loss caused by climate change and other forms of water mismanagement in the region. What do you think will be some of the solutions to these growing environmental and political problems? Yeah, that's a great question, Karina. The story of water is full of vulnerability. What ends up happening is that the crises we face, and we have faced over the course of history, have always been crises where the most vulnerable were hit. And their response is what then produces the crisis. A couple of things about the link between that and water. First of all, even though people like to say that the next wars will fall fall on water, in reality, water, interestingly, leads to far more cooperation than it leads to conflict. There's actually relatively limited evidence that water directly causes conflict. Now, that happens occasionally. I remember visiting the southern border between Ethiopia and Kenya some 10 years ago. There were constant skirmishes between local nomadic tribes because they competed over too few watering holes for their cattle. So when you don't have state institutions to negotiate, then indeed conflict can break out. But most of the time, you don't actually see that. What you see is some form of cooperation. And so, for example, if you think about one of the most famous rivers in the world, the Indus, you know, it's shared between Pakistan and India. These two countries have been at war three times. All through that period, they managed to share the waters of the Indus through the Indus Treaty. So the good news, you know, in a way, is that water, it's so important that people typically tend to try and cooperate, even if they're enemies, rather than engage in conflict. That said, though, the water situation can have very unexpected impacts on long causal chains. So, for example, if you go back to this Arab Spring phenomenon, you know, it predated the Syrian crisis a little bit, but you go back to 2010, in the summer of 2010, there were 
droughts. In fact, there were fires and droughts in Russia. Then those droughts migrated eastward towards northern China. So by the end of the summer, it's around September, both Russia and China had very, very severe droughts. Now that had an impact on the crop production of both countries. But what it had an even bigger impact on was on speculators who predicting that the prices would increase ended up going out on the market and buying an enormous amount of crops, thus fulfilling the prophecy. So it wasn't actually water itself, it was the response of society to a perceived risk with water that ended up lifting the price. Now those prices are global prices. So they ended up transmitted through the markets and arrived in the Middle East and particularly North Africa, where most countries buy crops from abroad. If you think of Egypt, Egypt's imported a third of its food from the rest of the world, which is ironic given that historically Egypt was the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. Now, those bread prices, the, the grain prices, then didn't necessarily show up directly at the consumer, because typically what those states do is they use public money to subsidize bread. But it was a huge drain on the treasuries. So now it weakened the state. Then the Arab Spring happens, and one after the other, you start in Tunisia, and then you kind of start moving both east and west, and you end up in Egypt with Hosni Mubarak falling right around the end of January of 2011. Now, it is not immaterial that Mubarak and all his buddies were dictators. That's why there was revolt. Let's not kid ourselves. This is not about water. It's about democracy. It's about the right, again, to self-determination. But of course, the water situation weakened the state and created a society that was much, much more vulnerable. Now, when Mubarak fell, I was in Ethiopia at that time I was telling you about. I was sitting in Addis Ababa. The day Mubarak fell, the government of Ethiopia announced they had broken ground on a new grand dam that they would build on the Blue Nile. Now, for years and years and years, Egypt had said, if you build a dam on the Nile, we'll bomb you. The day the government of Egypt falls, that's the day Ethiopia decides to start building this dam. And so I say all of this because the chain of events that started in the summer in Russia ends up with a government of Ethiopia starting to break ground on a big dam in the Nile. Now, was this caused by water? I mean, all of these dominoes had been set up by the geopolitics of the situation. But water provided a, a very powerful stressor. You can never really quite tell where those stresses are going to show up. You could never have predicted this chain of events. But when you look back on it, you can see that the vulnerability of certain societies ends up being a catalyst for crises. And that's what happened in Syria. Assad is responsible for what's happened in Syria. Let's be clear. But the vulnerability of the farmers who have to move to cities was certainly a compounding factor. And I suspect as we see more failed states, as we see more fragile states, we'll see more of that happening. Again, as I told you earlier, I'm a big believer that in the end, what matters above all is people. It's true in terms of right, but it's also true in terms of responsibilities. Responsibilities don't fall on the planet, they fall on people, right? But it's up to them to know how to manage the planet to avoid these crises. My name is Karina Hamoud. I graduated from San Francisco State University with a bachelor's in environmental studies and an emphasis in environmental sustainability and social justice. I'm an associate environmental justice podcast producer and interviewer for the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. I have a deep interest in social sciences, human rights, history, geography, economics, and politics which are all meshed excellently in this important conversation about water. 
Dr. Bocaletti addresses the pivotal role of centering people in the conversations about environmental conservation and sustainability. Access to natural resources and sovereignty over land allows self-determination for indigenous people all over the world. The indigenous Maori people of New Zealand, who live along the Wanganui River, see the river as sacred. Its waters have nourished their people for over 700 years. In 2017, the Wanganui River was granted personhood by an act of the New Zealand Parliament, making it the first river in the world to be recognized as an indivisible and living being. Two Maori people were inaugurated to speak on behalf of the Wanganui River. The health and well-being of the river people are intrinsically connected to the health and well-being of the river. The Wanganui District Council stated that the inseparability of the people in the Wanganui River underpins the responsibility of the Wanganui Iwi to care for, protect, manage, and use Wanganui River. In the past 50 to 60 years, we have created remarkable infrastructure to collect and manage our water supply, leading most people to believe a narrative which separates us from nature. In this conversation, we dive deep into the reality that nature is a moving system that cannot be contained or controlled by humans. We are a part of it, dependent on it, and must learn to live within its bounds and in collaboration in order to ensure the well-being of the planet and all its people. Now back to the interview. Given agricultural demands on water supplies, and by extension, also our meat consumption, which uses up an immense amount of resources as well, what is your feeling on our best move forward, conservation, efficient use, or other solutions like desalination. What are your hopes for the next 10 years? Well, in a way, all of the above. The good news is that we have a long list of solutions. Those solutions include a far better, more informed use of ecology and ecosystems. We sometimes discount ecosystems. In reality, even at the beginning of the century, even when people started building the big dams that environmentalists tend to worry about. Even back then, people realized that you also had to manage forests. You also had to manage ecosystems. We didn't suddenly discover this. We've known this for quite some time. So there's a conversation to be had about the integration of nature as a security infrastructure for society, and particularly a water security infrastructure for society. There are then all these technologies, desalination being an example, but it's not a silver bullet. There are many others. You can imagine reuse, you can imagine various forms of technological solutions, all the way to making informed and better choices about what it is that you use the water for. Do we really need to grow alfalfa in the west of the United States and then ship it off to other countries? I think that there are a long list of solutions. In a way, solutions are not the problem. It's not even hard for a technocrat to come up with a thing that looks like an answer. I've done it over the last 10, 15 years. You can quite easily take a country situation and say, okay, well, if you implemented all these different solutions, you could get to a balanced supply and demand. The problem doesn't really reside there. The problem is that people have gotten used to thinking about water as a technical issue that can be solved by somebody sitting in a room somewhere with a white coat. The reality is that the history of water shows that this is probably the most political and salient issue of society. How we share the resources that make it possible for us to live is a fundamentally political problem. And in nations that live together under a social contract is fundamentally a constitutional problem. So my hope is that we elevate water and water as a proxy for many environmental issues that we face today to a much higher level 
of political discourse. It is amazing to me that in most countries, most political parties have only the vaguest environmental agenda, although things are hopefully changing, but it's still the case that people sort of think of an environmental agenda as a sort of tree-hugging, sort of particularly determined point of view, right? It's, it's a radical point of view. There are radical point of views, of course, but all political parties should know what to do with the resources of their of their nations and should have an answer to the fundamental question of what will our children find? What will they have? What are the resources that they'll encounter? So my hope, back to your question, I think there are plenty of solutions. My hope, in fact, is that we elevate the discussion out of the technical discussion into a political discussion with a big P. What matters to us? What do we want our landscape to look like? What do we want our cities to look like? What do we want our life to look like? Those are the questions from which you can then derive a plan to manage the water resources of a society. Well, I'm so happy to know that there are those solutions and that we just have to have the courage uh, to implement them or to put pressure on our politicians to get together and cooperate. Speaking about better management or choosing crops that consume less water, I'm not sure if this would make a, a huge difference, but I read about some crops, is it almonds or walnuts or avocados? This, I didn't realize for those people who really enjoy eating those foods, how thirsty they were as crops, would making those choices like the meat consumption really make a very significant impact on our demands? What is eminently local? So the answer to your question is not a global answer. Growing water thirsty plants in places with plenty of water is not a problem. There are some instances where growing water thirsty plants uh, in places where people don't have alternatives in terms of income also shouldn't be a problem. So I, I think that it, it's a mistake to think that the problem is only demand restraint. There's 7 billion of us, we're going to have to eat. People go hungry today. People don't have access to water today. There's an imbalance. We have to, of course, figure out how to do things better. But I think it's a mistake to think that the problem gets solved simply by Tukur deciding that water thirsty plants are good or bad. They're not good or bad. It depends on the context in which they're being grown. I think sometimes there's a little bit too much reliance on consumers and on choices that consumers make. Before we are consumers, we're citizens. The reason I say it's a fundamentally political problem is that we need to think about water first as citizens and only second as consumers. The biggest power we have is not in making choices about the strawberries we eat without knowing where they came from or without knowing the particular conditions in which they were grown on a particular farm. That's not where our biggest impact can be. Our biggest impact is in engaging as concerned citizens in the stewardship of our own resources. And that's true for California, it's true for Europe, and it's true for the rest of the world. With water, it's always a complicated answer. But I do think that's what I mean by a political issue. In water, we're first citizens, then consumers. How do you think our global perception and relationship to water will change over the next century? Oh, I don't have the foggiest idea, Karina. I'm afraid. A century is a long, long time. Give you some perspective. So if you were in 1900 and asked that question of 2000, in 1900, 40% of the United States still lived on a farm. That's not true today. And the life of farmers in 1900 wasn't all that distinguishable from the life of a farmer in the 12th century. Many of them didn't have access to electricity. Most of them used animals. Most of the energy was either animal energy or fuel wood, maybe a little bit of coal. If you think about water specifically, the biggest dam in the world in 1904, when it was built, was the lower Aswan Dam 
on the Nile was a masonry dam that was built by the British when they had the protectorate. We essentially caught no water in dams. There were no large pieces of infrastructure on the planet to speak of that caught water in that way. Fast forward to 1975. By that point, we caught a fifth of everything that came down from the sky. By the end of the century, only 5% of the energy used is human energy. All the rest of it is fossil fuels and the likes. Water moves slowly, takes time to build stuff. In a century, all sorts of things can happen. But I'll tell you one thing that's an anomaly in the latter part of the 20th century and today compared to the rest of the entire history of humanity. You and I and me are here and all our colleagues and friends around the country don't spend a lot of time talking about water. That's an anomaly. Water was the predominant concern of agrarian societies for 99% of human history. Over the last 50, 60 years, because of all those dams, we've convinced ourselves that we live in a world that's emancipated from nature. I don't exit my home and wade a river to get somewhere. I don't have to worry about a river coming through my living room and moving my furniture. That was a concern for 10,000 years. In the last 50, 60 years, it wasn't anymore. It wasn't because we spent an enormous amount of money building infrastructure on the rivers of the world, thousands and thousands of dams, levees, canals, to essentially contain the force of the climate system. And then we made a mistake. We convinced ourselves that it had gone away forever. What the floods of Germany, China, the droughts of the West of the United States, the problems of Colorado show, is that's not true. Behind the levees, behind the dams, behind the walls, the same problems keep running exactly like they did 100 years ago, exactly like they did 1,000 years ago. And so I don't know what the 100 years from now it will look like. I can tell you that I suspect we'll be talking a lot more about water, a lot more than we will be talking about Mars, frankly. I think we will be worrying a lot more about how to deal with resources on this planet because I think we'll have come to realize that the last 50, 60 years were a blip. We're not emancipated from nature. We're part of it, and we need to figure out how to coexist. It's well put. As you say, we do come from water. We're made up of water and it's in our DNA and it's in our history. As we'll discover in your book, Water Biography, it's important to know that history, our place within it, and, and what we can do to secure it for future generations. On that note, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving towards the next generation, what were some of those lessons, those teachers, those things that were important in terms of inspiring you to be an environmentalist that taught you something? And what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I've had the the good fortune of having a rather meandering path through life. I started out as an academic and was in academia for just under a decade as a climate scientist and research scientist, and then went into business and worked as a consultant to governments around the world, mostly on issues of water security. Uh, and then, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I worked at one of the large conservation organizations on the planet. So I've encountered many different people over that time and many, many mentors. And one thing I would say is that we need bright people to think about these problems. The world is full of interesting problems to solve and interesting problems that matter. I've spent the last 20 years searching for places and issues that I could work on that were meaningful and, and I tried to make a difference. And it's entirely possible. There's nothing special about me. I think everybody can do that. You just have to have the kind of courage to search and get help from mentors. I was helped all along by people who... When I asked them what I should do, they gave me advice and they helped me understand it. So the first thing is just make sure you spend time on problems that matter. 
because there are a lot of them and we need a lot of smart people thinking about them. The second thing is, particularly if you are in academia, I think the world of ideas matters enormously. So don't be fooled into thinking that universities don't matter and ideas don't matter. That's all there is in the end. The story of water is a story of ideas, human ideas about the planet. And those ideas are what changed the face of the planet. It is, of course, constructions, it is dams. But in the end, they were all born out of radical dreams that somebody had about what the future should look like. So ideas matter. Learn about them and start building your own. The third, I remember a very, very important mentor for me was John Briscoe, who was an academic and was also the head of the World Bank's water programs for many, many years. And he had worked for years and years and years in water, had incredible experiences all around the world. And he had a relentless, relentless focus on the human condition, on making sure, even if you call yourself an environmentalist, I'm an uncomfortable environmentalist, because as I told you, I care about people more than I care about anything else. But even if you are an environmentalist, put people at the heart of what you do. Partly because ultimately that's where we can have and where we should have our biggest impact is on the lives and, and, and well-being of our fellow human beings. But also because it's cooperation with those humans. It's cooperation with others that leads to solutions. Don't just be against things. Try and find common ground. Water is a wonderful place to do that because it's a complicated thing and there's never a silver bullet. It's always second best solutions that require compromises. And so it's a very good training ground for that attitude. So focus on people. That's a wonderfully practical, humanistic advice. And yes, we focus on people and in turn, the environments they live in. So it's hand in hand. We can't conquer nature. We have to live within its boundaries and limits. So thank you, Giulio Boccoletti, for telling the story of water and society and helping us understand water scarcity and security and how we can better manage this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you very much. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Karina Hamoud. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast, and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.